Throughout the summer, we're going through the, the letter of James, which is at the end of the New Testament, um, written by James. Uh, James introduces himself in verse 1 of chapter 1. He calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, as we pointed out several weeks ago, uh, that statement is quite remarkable because James himself is actually by kind of genetic family, if you like, the half-brother of Jesus. So he's another son of Mary. And so he, he doesn't introduce himself as, I am brother of God. No, he's I'm, it's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we noted last time about how he, even in his introduction, he defines himself around Jesus. Jesus is the Lord, the ruler. He's in charge of everything. He's the Savior. The name Jesus means the one who saves us from our sins. And he's Christ. He's the anointed one with the Holy Spirit come from God to earth to be with us. So he, he's someone who introduced himself and defines himself and his life around Jesus. And we again noted last time that that's useful for us. That's good for us. If I can get to the end of my life and look back and, 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 and have people say of me that I defined it about Jesus, that I would, if I could be known for being about Jesus, then that would have been a, that would have been a good day. That would have been a good life well lived. Um, and he writes to um, Christians. He calls them brothers and sisters. At uh, some points in the letter, he refers to them as his dear brothers and sisters. Actually, the, um, most of our translations just put brothers, but the, the Greek word means both brothers and sisters. Uh, he's concerned about the people of God. He's writing at a time, not, most people believe, not long after the first wave of persecution hits the church. And for the first time, Christian believers find themselves scattered across the known world. And he's writing to them as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, wanting to encourage them to grow in their faith, to press on in their faith, to apply their faith, to live out their faith. And he writes it from, from the heart of a pastor to uh, the people that he loves. So brothers and sisters, my dearly beloved, and all of that. In fact, over 10 times, James, in this short letter alone, over 10 times, James addresses the whole theme of relationships. So he's talking to this church, encouraging them to follow Jesus, but also to be the people of God, to be a people in relationship with one another, to be the family of God. And we've looked at some how-tos. We're trying to make this summer as, as, as practical as possible. We've looked at how to grow as a Christian. We, throw, we, we, throw, we saw that the best way to, do, to grow as a Christian, the best way to mature is to endure trials, which isn't very comfortable a lot of the times. Uh, we looked at how to resist temptation, saw that by trusting God's good plan for our lives. We looked last week with Polly at how to handle our anger, which I know doesn't apply to many people in the room, uh, but at least for me, I found it useful, how to deal with my anger. And so today I want to talk about something that, in, as soon as I say it, you'll think this is extremely random, but stay with me. I want to talk today about, um, here we go, I've got this, uh, how to spot celebrity. How to spot celebrity. When I read the Bible passage, that will hopefully become clear for us why I'm mentioning that. Uh, we live in a world that um, we love to make celebrities out of people. We aspire to fame and fortune and worldly glory a lot of the time. We define our lives that way. Um, several years ago, I went to the Oscars um, and to an Oscar after-show party. Uh, although when I say I went to an after-show party, I, I stood in a crowd of people outside an Oscar after-show party. And when I say I stood in a crowd of people outside the Oscar after-show party, I stood like 10 rows back. Uh, and I saw these celebrities, the famous people, as they arrived for a party. And they looked like you and me. They looked just so normal and so regular and a lot smaller than they do on the big screen. But I saw these celebrities and... 
One of them even heard my name, knows my name. That's right. I have at home, it used to be on my wall, but I'm not allowed to have it on my wall anymore. I have on, on my student flat wall at home um, a signed photograph of Angelina Jolie. That's right. Uh, the reason I'm not allowed to have it on my wall is because she's wearing a, a swimsuit. I didn't choose the picture, but there we go. I was in this crowd of people as Angelina walked past, and this celebrity hunter guy was at the front, and he shouted out to Angelina. He said, hey, Angelina, can you sign this picture for my British friend Jeremy? He used two, two kind of key words there, British friend and Jeremy. She knows my name, albeit my full name, which very few people are allowed to know because it's less cool. Um, but she knows my full name and she knew that I was British, which was an exciting moment. Angelina Jolie, I met her. I've had tea with Angelina Jolie. She probably remembers that moment like, I don't know, a very significant moment in her life, probably not. Um, but, but celebrity and the whole world of celebrity is amusing and it's, and it's interesting, something that we as a church need to think about uh, for several reasons, not least because the church is known for being a people who uh, are quite judgmental and we tend to value and prioritize and treat with respect at times the wrong kinds of people. We hold people up on pedestals um, like the world does. We revere famous Christians or we treat people with money more significantly than other people or at times just in the church. Our attitudes towards people don't always reflect the attitudes of God and how God would want us to treat people. So let me put uh, some photos up over here. And as they scroll through, I want you to try to spot a celebrity. You can be a celebrity hunter uh, like this. Here we go. So here's some photos. I want you to spot a celebrity. Let me know when you see one. There we go. Okay, we'll come back to that list in a moment. I wonder if you saw any celebrities. What I'd like us to do today is, since it's summer, we're going to try to be a little bit more informal and relaxed. So uh, I want you to find a person next to you, and uh, we're going to have a couple of discussion points today. Try to engage us all. So my first question that I'd like you to discuss with the people around you is this. What is celebrity, and who gets to decide? What is celebrity and who gets to decide? Talk to the person next to you. Just take a couple of minutes to kick that one around together. Um, so the word celebrity just comes from celebrate, doesn't it? What we celebrate is a celebrity. And um, she said that. Well done, Fiona. It's good. Mini ripple of applause. No, we won't embarrass you. Um, comes from uh, who we celebrate, well-known people, perhaps, and um, basically you get to decide. <laughs> whoever you value and, and whoever a, a group of people get together and decide, this person is worth celebrating, they become a celebrity. Is that right? So you've ever been around people who get weak at the knees around somebody who you just think, who on earth, why do you care about them? That's not worth getting excited about. Justin who? Bieber? I don't know. Why should I get excited about him? Um, very few people are these days, I know, but that's what happens. And this matters, though, for us in the church because... Um, who we celebrate reveals how we evaluate people. Who we celebrate and what we celebrate reveals something about how we evaluate someone's value and worth. And the question I want to ask us in the church today, and by the way, if you're not a church person, you might enjoy today because uh, hopefully I'm going to have a go at us as Christians and how we often get this wrong. Um, so bear with us and you can look in and go, yeah, I told you. 
Because it was interesting, when we, when we did our survey on uh, what do people object, why do people object to Christianity, the number one objection that people had was the church, that the church is known for being a place that's hypocritical, judgmental, and nasty, apparently. But the question that I want to ask us as a church is this, um, do we measure and value people? And do we as a church make celebrities out of the right people? Do we judge people by the same standard that our Father does in heaven? So with that as our kind of uh, preface and backdrop, let's get into James chapter 2 together. It'll appear behind me. Alex, can you click along just while I read? Uh, That'd be helpful. So in James 2, verses 1 to 9, I think we're going. James says this, My brothers and sisters, show no favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, to the one uh, who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show favoritism, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors or as law breakers. Favoritism. You might say, I'm not guilty of favoritism. I'm not guilty of favoritism. Uh, But all of us make snap judgments about people or we prefer one group or one type of person to another. When people visit us as a church, um, we might look at them and say, oh, I'll talk to them because they look nice. I won't talk to them because they look scary or intimidating. Or, oh, I'll make sure that they're served well. And we, again, we might not think this in our conscious mind, but there's a part of us that we're always making snap judgments about people, aren't we? And it, it, especially in the world that we live in, it can be easy to be suspicious of people who we don't know. They look different from me. I've heard this story about so-and-so who tried to help someone and they died. I don't want to help someone in case I die. And so we're naturally suspicious of people in that sense. Uh, But the world that we live in, the human nature that we're born with, has a value system. Uh, And a system, it seems, that is different from Jesus. We, especially I suppose in our society, we value youth over age, um, gift over character. It doesn't matter that you steal or that you lie or that you this or that. You're very gifted. Let's listen to you. Let's learn from you. Or we value perhaps knowledge over wisdom. And in church life, we can be just as guilty of this as anyone else. So we make sure that we applaud the worship band, give them a lot of public honor and acclaim. Thank you so much. Oh. So everybody sitting there goes, oh, those are the important ones. Or we give, give me a microphone. You have to listen to me for an hour uh, if you're lucky, if you're lucky. Um, but those who really serve and work behind the scenes, we don't often know their names. We don't often think to thank them. We don't often applaud them like we should. And is that a problem, perhaps? Is that a, a symptom of our favoritism? So here's another discussion point that I'd like to just chuck out there for you. Uh, in the New Testament, 
There's several lists of gifts. It's not, a, it's not an exhaustive list, um, but there's several lists of gifts in the New Testament. Gift of exhortation, uh, giving, leadership, mercy, prophecy, service, teaching, administration, evangelism, and so on. My question to you to discuss is this. Which gifts do we in the church treat as the best or the most important gifts? And is that a problem? And if so, what are we going to do about it? Okay, so that's a few things there for you to think about. Which is the best gift? And is that a problem? Um, and what are we going to do about it? Those kind of things. So it doesn't have to be what you personally think, but what does the church seem to present? What image is presented to, to those of us who sit in chairs and listen and watch and things like that? What image can we end up getting about those gifts? So discuss. You have a few minutes for that one. Now, in, in what we read from James, uh, it's clear that if nothing else, he's pleading with the church to be different in this, to, to not make the same kind of favoritism and judgment calls as, as the world might do or as your human nature might lead you to. Just because someone's dressed in fine clothes and looks important doesn't mean that they are, for whatever reason, just somehow inherently more trustworthy or valuable or respectable or desirable than anybody else. Uh, so James is urging the church, be different, think differently, work this stuff through. Really, do, should, should the gift of miracles really be at the top? Is that the one that we really want? Or is actually, in 1 Corinthians, Paul himself says, no, the most important gift is that, like, the foundation of a building that goes in. And, and he says, well, I'm an apostle, and that's the gift that you guys, to this church, you guys pour scorn on this gift, apostle, foundation laying. But that's important, because if you don't build the foundation of a building, it doesn't matter, you, well, it limits how high you can go, limits what you can do. And yet, as, as people who are kind of drawn to particular gifts, we might value miracles or preaching, that's the thing that we want to aspire to, well, I want the gift of the words of knowledge so that I can just tell you what you had for breakfast and you'll be like, wow. And you'll think that I'm like, wow. And, and I can make a name for myself if I have that gift and I don't want administration because they don't get up the front very often. They don't get in the glossy magazines. I don't know. So here, let's just have a look at, make some observations about what James says and how to spot a celebrity then. Given the influence of the world and our nature, how do we detox from that? Having become Christians and come into the church and decided to follow Jesus, how do we detox from the influences around us that cause us to spot celebrities badly? We're not very good at honoring the right people. James says this in 2.1, My brothers, show no favoritism as you hold as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, show no favoritism. That's what he does. So the first thing that we do in, in detoxing, if you like, being able to think clearly and think as Christians, is that we don't show favoritism. In verse 9, he says that favoritism is a sin. Sin is bad. Sin killed Jesus. Sin is pretty bad. Actually, sin in a church is like mold on a piece of bread. If you don't stop it or confront it or talk about it, it just grows through the whole batch. You have that moment most mornings or at least once a week where you come down and you hope that the bread isn't, isn't been there so long that you can't have toast. And there's always a speck of mold on the corner. And you think, if I cut the speck of mold off the corner, I can still eat the bread. And then you put it in the toaster and you bring it out and realize there were other specks that I didn't see. And now that means that the bag has only got hours left to live of bread before I throw it out. Because mold works its way through the whole batch. So it is with sin. Favoritism is sin. Where we see it in our lives, in the church, we need to stop it. We need to stamp it out. We need to kill it. So show no favoritism. What does that mean? 
Well, first of all, it, what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to show due respect and honor to people who deserve it. So in the book of Leviticus, it says this, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. The Bible has a high regard for the elderly or the older person among us. Our culture doesn't. We put Justin Bieber's and the 12-year-olds on the X Factor stage and we give up our Saturday evenings to watch them, not the older folk. And actually, as a, as a church like this, we're a new church. We're just starting to grow and make, get influence in the town and hopefully introduce people to Jesus. And by God's kindness and just provision, I suppose, it tends that our average age of person is, is under the age of 40 in this congregation here. So the danger is that people who are older, the age of, older than 40 can think, oh, there's not really much place for me here in this community. And that is not true at all. Not true at all. In actual fact, the book of Leviticus says that people who are older in a community ought to be given the highest honor and treated with the highest worth and dignity because they're not always the wisest, but they are deserving of respect and honor. If nothing else, because we as younger people need to learn from them, listen to them, value them. Now, I'm putting the distinction at 40 there. And anyone put it at any age. But you, in any community, might feel like I'm the older person here. You could be in your 20s and feel like I'm the older person here. Next week at New Day, I'm the older person here. You need to respect me. I don't know. But however you feel, whatever's going on, this Bible passage is not saying you're not supposed to show favoritism or treat with honor and respect the older person. We are. And I want us as a community to honor people properly. Also, it doesn't mean that we're, we're, not allowed, we're, we're still supposed to honor those in authority. So this is Proverbs 24. My son, fear the Lord and the King, and do not join with those who do otherwise. Honor those in authority. You see that again in 1 Peter in the New Testament. Now, God's people don't always get this right when it comes to honoring people properly. Um, we, we tend to appraise people by a lot of worldly measures. So in the Old Testament, you see it with King Saul, who's appointed by the people because he's a, a head and shoulders above the rest. He's impressive. Whereas actually God's chosen man was the, the small boy that was left out in the field when the brothers were put on display. God seems to value and appraise and judge people very differently than we do. And it wasn't so long ago in this country where church pews um, were, could be bought and sold and owned by the richest members of the church. And church pews would remain locked until the rich patrons turned up to sit in them. And there was, in the corner of a church near the front, there were some signs that bore the word free, where the poorer people would sit. That wasn't so long ago in our country. And that's exactly what James is talking about. Don't do that. So he's not saying don't honor people who deserve honor, but he is saying that you don't always get this right. So don't show favoritism. And secondly, this, if you really fulfill the law, uh, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the other way that we can detox from our wrong way of thinking about this is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. How do you love yourself? Well, you love yourself this way. When you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror and go, ugh, <laughs> and so you have a shower and you get dressed and you do your hair and you put makeup on and you do your healthy eating regime and plan. You love yourself in action. Even if you don't emotionally feel like you appreciate who you are, you treat yourself well. You look after yourself. You do your best to make yourself as presentable as possible. I'm not going to turn up at church without having my face on, my game face on. I'm going I'm to turn up ready. don't want people to see me without makeup, John. 
don't want to turn up at church without my flowery bag. What will people think? <laughs> we love by showing action. And actually, when the Bible talks about showing love, it's talking about love not as emotion, but as action. Uh, and Jesus defined who we're to show love to when he quoted those words, he said those words that were quoted, love your neighbor as yourself. And he defined the word neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan basically as anyone who's in need. Anyone who's in need, you're to love them, show love and kindness to them. So we have those two things, how to spot a celebrity, how to detox, if you like, from the world that we're in. Don't show favoritism and do love your neighbor as yourself. Actually, in verses 8 and 9, um, James pulls out those two things and puts them alongside each other. And one Bible commentator points out that in doing this, he's, he's almost mirroring what... Um, what was done in the Old Testament when, the, when they read out the law. They had one group of people stand on one mountain, another group of people stand on another mountain, and on one mountain they proclaimed all of the blessings that would come to people if they kept the law. And on the other mountain they would proclaim to those in the valley all of the curses that would come to people uh, if they didn't obey the law, the blessings and curses. So I thought it'd be fun. In, in, my, in my study, I thought this would work and be fun. So if we divided in a room like this, and you can be one mountain, and you can be another mountain, and, uh, and this mountain, you're going to read out the blessing that comes from keeping this passage, from obeying this, and you're going to read out the curse. And I'm going to be like the person who lives in the valley in the middle. Where we live out our Christian life is between these two mountains. So this half, you're going to read out the bits in green, and then you're going to read out the bits in white. Actually, that's quite long, so I've, I've got another one where I just shortened it, made it less wordy. Here we go. It's the same thing. You can trust me. Okay. Um, so you guys, one, two, three. Wow, I feel so like I'm in a room of robots. Here we go again, with some emotion right now and some gusto. Okay, imagine this. I am um, Joe Christian, just trying to live out my Christian life, trying to work out um, what passage I should obey, how should I follow Jesus, and you guys represent these kind of safeguards for me in my life, okay? And I want you to read these words out like you're trying to do me good and you're trying to save me from wrecking my life. So don't do this because this is the curse. Do do this because you'll be blessed. So a little bit more gusto, okay? All right, go. <laughs> that was worse than the first time. It's because I didn't count you in, did I? Sorry. One, two, three. I'm just confused by what happened over here. <laughs> All right, one more time. We want to get this right. You're trying to spare my life. Okay, go. There we go. Thank you. Okay. And that's how we live the Christian life. James has given us some instructions. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If you show favoritism, you're committing sin. You're like, okay, so I need to live within these two things. I need to go for blessing, avoid sin, avoid curses. And actually, we need to live and build church within those two peaks of those mountains. Because then the last thing I want to point out that James says 
is this. In verse 1 again of chapter 2, My brother, show no favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And actually, the Bible commentators point out again that the Greek sentence structure of this, the last half of that sentence is unusually abrupt. And it's as though he's trying to make a particular point. A lot of our Bible translators don't really know what to do with this. Because literally, in the Greek, he just says, Lord Jesus, the glorious. And so the word glory is, in this sentence here, descriptive of Jesus. He's saying, it's not just saying he's the Lord of glory, which he is. It's something descriptive about him. It's more like it's saying this. Hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the glory. He is our glory. See there, so this is the third thing that we can do in the middle of the valley. The way where we live our lives is that we, as Christians now, need to celebrate true glory. We need to have our configuration of what glory really is reorientated to be around Jesus and who he is. See, there are two types of glory. There's the glory that the world aspires to and that we often fall into the pit of. And then there's true glory as got redefined by Jesus. Alec Matthias says that glory is shorthand for the personal presence and goodness of God. And in James 2, when he says, hold the faith and celebrate the true glory. In other words, if you want the glory of God in your meeting, don't show favoritism. And do love your neighbor as you love yourself. Actually, when a church makes celebrities or celebrates the same things as the world, the glory of God departs. The glory of God departs. When a church celebrates the same things that the world does and just judges people by the same value system, the glory of God departs. Again, Alec Matea just says, you've denied the faith when you do that. Uh, we've swallowed the lie of the world that we live in. And actually, a truly charismatic, which means grace-filled, spirit-filled church, a truly spirit-filled church celebrates the same things that God does. A church where the presence of God is, where the glory of God is manifest. In James 2.1, it says, by not showing favoritism, by being a different type of community. We live between these two peaks. See, the road that we're to travel down as Christians is the road of the cross. We are, if you like, pilgrims following Jesus. We don't come together on Sunday mornings to learn from the tour guide about these beautiful monuments from the past. No, we're here as pilgrims together journeying to become more like Jesus, to live more as Christians, to have his glory as the glory and our glory. And we need to make celebrities, therefore, out of those that God makes celebrities. So who does God celebrate? Well, in this passage, he celebrates the poor, celebrates the needy, um, celebrates the neighbor, the one who needs your help. Jesus said that the greatest of all is the servant. And in so doing, just with those three, the poor, the needy, and the servant, you see that Jesus' configuration of what true glory is is so wildly different from ours. And we need to behave towards them in the same way that we might behave towards a famous person. People do a lot to go listen to famous people. We spend our money, our time, our energy, our emotion to be around famous people. In the church, it's the servant, the poor, the needy ought to feel like celebrities. Let me get you a cup of coffee. Have a seat. It's great to see you. 
or as we're in the workplace. They're the people that we ought to be encouraging and loving and seeking out because not just because it's a nice thing to do, but because actually that's the true glory. That's actually truly what's glorious and worthy of commendation and fame and honor and worthy of respect. So as a church, we can do several things. We can, I don't know if you've ever done this, practice some reverse gossiping. Um, get with a friend, and, and when you're tempted to just say, have you heard about so-and-so? Do it the other way and say, have you heard about so-and-so? She has served her socks off for months and months and months. He turns up and plays drums every Sunday. Have you heard about how much he's given recently of himself, how he's spent his emotion and energy? Or did you hear about how God's taken that family on a journey of generosity? Practice some reverse gossiping. Let me tell you about someone I met. They'll never appear in a glossy magazine, but they're the real powerhouse of the church. This lady prays every day for the church. Prays every day for her neighbors. Prays every day for her family. She's up in the night praying. They're the celebrities of church life. There'll always be a new person at the front to tell you what the Bible says, but the real pillars of the community are the people who day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, serve, love, give, pray for, make meals for, visit. Without them, there is no church. There's just someone in front of the cafe trying to tell you what the Bible says. Those are the real celebrities. And as a church, we ought to be such a counter-cultural environment that people grasp that and get that. Often when we, I don't know, get people out of the front and we give them flowers for anniversaries or we thank them for things that they've done, um, I get us to stand because I want us to do what we can, just symbolically standing to applaud, to honor them, to celebrate them, say these are the real celebrities, the servants, those who look after our kids every week, who have babies sick down them by the end of the morning, who turn up ready for war. They put on their purple t-shirts and they know that today they're going to get sicked on Today they might even have a child we on them. But they're going to serve. They're going to get their hands dirty. Those are the celebrities. Those are the ones that we want to celebrate and honor and applaud. In the things that you do in your work life, many of you are celebrities. I was talking to someone this morning who said she works in a hostel. Not We all know who that is now. She works in a hostel. <laughs> and, and during the, the weekend, there's been a lot of people coming to a hospi- hostel, like a hotel, and just urinating at the entrance of this hostel and she's had to clear it up and and get it cleaned up you think wow but there's in heaven they're going look at the servant heart there (laughs) look at what you might not have exuded that at the time but look at how they're cleaning that up serving loving giving using their gifts spending themselves on behalf of the needy the poor those are the people that we're to celebrate those are the true celebrities let's do let me just show you again this list of celebrities that we started with you can spot the true celebrities we can spot famous people but can you spot a celebrity amongst this list see Jesus is our glory that right there that the world spat at that the world kind of did this and thought we're rid of that criminal that was actually the most glorious thing that's ever taken place That God, the triune God, who's existed before the universe was created, who created everything, not out of a need and lack in himself, but because he loves, and out of the overflow of his love, created everything. That God 
became a man and allowed the creation that he made to butcher him on a cross. That is glory. That's what real power looks like. He's not a CEO of a company. He's not the CEO of the church. He's the shepherd who lays his life down for the flock. That's how Jesus handled his anger. He didn't yell at people and call down an army from heaven. He entrusted, how was that? He entrusted himself. He entrusted himself to his father who judges justly. When Jesus was tempted to pursue a glory as defined by the world, when the enemy said, trust me and I'll give you everything, Jesus entrusted himself to the good God who has good plans and good purposes for him. The cross that is the moment of humiliation of the Son of God, that's supposed to be the depths of shame, is actually the thing that we gather around. Early Christians were thought lunatics for painting crosses on doorways to show that they were Christians. For in, when they gathered in their secret meetings because it was illegal, they'd draw pictures of the cross or they'd use some symbols basically to say, we're the people of the cross. That shameful Roman instrument of torture that's abhorrent, that Cicero said a Roman citizen shouldn't even take the word on their lips. It's so barbaric. The Christians hung crosses around their necks. This is our glory. This is what we live by. We've got these two mountains either side saying, yeah, love your neighbor and don't show favoritism. But this is the pilgrim way that takes up its cross and says, this is my glory. People might not applaud me. They might not thank me for what I've done. It doesn't matter. I never did it for people. I did it for him because he's my glory. He's the one I want to be like. He's the one I want to please. He's the one at the end of my life. He's going to say, well done, good, faithful steward of what I gave you. He's our glory. You know, God never showed favoritism to you. He didn't just pick the brightest of the bunch. In actual fact, the Bible says the opposite. It says not many of you are wise. Not many of you are respectable by human standards. Not many in this room are going to get PhDs or earn millions of pounds. But God chose you. God has not shown us favoritism. He's shown those who needed his help the most. God hasn't forgiven those who've done the least wrong. He forgave those who've done the most wrong. Christians are not those who've got their act together. Christians are those who are following someone who has got their act together. The only person who's ever got their act together. So church, I want us, I'm pleading with us like James was and would, to be a counter-cultural alternative movement of people, because, not because we're nicer than everyone else, but because how we define glory, what we hold up as w- being valuable and worthy of respect and honor is so different because it looks more like that and less like the traditional images of glory that we might see. We're going to respond this morning by breaking bread, um, remembering in physical form, Jesus' death on a cross in our place for our sin. And this is something that's for Christians, but it's also something for you who might want to become a Christian today. Take bread for the first time and say, I'm trusting in Jesus' death on a cross for me. There's some, going to be a station here. We're going to get the hosting team to bring uh, a tray of juice and some bread here. There's going to be a tray at the back here. And while the song's going on, you can stand up and in your own time and way, go and grab some bread, take some juice, go back to your seat and thank God for true glory and ask God to help you to live a life that values what God values, that reconfigures itself around what is truly glorious.
Let me pray together and then we'll finish. Father, thank you for the glory that you showed to us on the cross. Jesus, you are not just the Lord of glory, but you are glory itself. You are the glorious Lord. Help me, God, to not just embody the attitudes of the world that I live in, to not just embody the attitudes that my natural instinct kind of wants to prize and treat those with money as more important or treat those with intellect as more worth listening to. But help us, God, celebrate those things that you celebrate. Celebrate those people that you celebrate. Lord, as we take bread and juice, we remind ourselves that you did not show favoritism when you looked at the world, but you chose the neediest among us. You chose those who needed it the most to forgive them, to love them. Amen.